0: Okay, well let me open this up in a word of prayer, and we are going to finish uh, Psalm 34 today, and I have handouts, the same same handouts as last week, so if you need one, great, I'll put them right here, you can pass them around if you'd like, Uh, if not, you can just take your own notes, but let me pray for us, and we'll finish up Psalm 34. Heavenly Father, thank you for a wonderful morning, and thank you for this church, and how you have... Bless this church immeasurably, and we ask for continued blessing, ultimately for our spiritual blessing, um, for when even when our temporal and financial and earthly resources are gone, nevertheless, we still have you and eternity. <clears throat> so I pray that you would continue to feed our faith, that we would continue to give us eyes to see um, what is unseen, and I pray now as we study Psalm 34 that it would really build us up that we would be, uh, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, and that ultimately you do deliver us uh, from all of our afflictions. And I just pray for wisdom now as we walk through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you think of it, guys, uh, please, I'm preaching today, so if you think of it, please pray for me, because I uh, have started to develop a little bit of a cough, and I hope that I can make it through teaching today and then preaching without breaking off into some sort of horrible hacking fit that you would all have to be subject to. So, please, if you think of it, for your own sake, pray for me. Uh, so we covered up to verses, to verse 14 in Psalm 34 last week, but I want to go back and just touch on a couple of things because I had some good questions afterwards. The, If you have an ESV, the... The psalm is given the title. This is not an inspired title. This is the ESV editors putting these things in here. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, as the, as the title. Kind of trying to grab onto the main theme. And I think that's fitting. I think that's fitting to, to see as kind of the main point of this psalm is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because David had experienced a a, a, a remarkable physical or temporal deliverance. And he had trusted in the Lord and he experienced that deliverance. And in that experiencing of that deliverance, he tasted in a spiritual sense that the Lord is good. The Lord not only tells him that he is good, he not only reveals himself that he is good, but in David's own experience, he sees that God is good. So then in verse 8, he is exhorting the saints or the people listening to him to give yourself to God in trust and you will find out, taste and see that the Lord is good. So I think it's fitting that the, the ESV editors or maybe even the NASB, I didn't look in the NASB, that they have entitled this psalm, Taste and See That the Lord is Good. Uh, we broke this up, it's, it breaks up really easy in terms of just Easy sections to digest, verses 1 through 3, David is praising the Lord for his deliverance and he's recruiting, as it were, I think that's the right word, he's recruiting other people to praise the Lord with him. And this is really the heart, I argued last week, this is the heart of the godly man, the godly woman, that you want to gather, not only praise the Lord by yourself, but you also want to gather other believers around with you and say, let's magnify the Lord together. Uh, I was in a wedding for one of my good friends from uh, college years ago, and he wrote a song for his bride, and he sang it to her um, the night before they were married, out on the deck. It was really quite sweet, and um, a big, like the main part of the song, he played the guitar and he sang the song, the main part of the song was, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together, and I thought that that was sweet, that was fitting as a married couple, but... And in, in, in legitimate, and a great song for him to write. But the context here is David exhorting the whole congregation, right? So yeah, it, can, it certainly can apply to married couples, but it also, and particularly, it applies to uh, the congregation. David is saying, I've been delivered, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I want us all to celebrate and rejoice and praise the Lord together. So one of the things I said last week is, as a believer, we, we treasure times alone with the Lord but not at the expense of times together praising the Lord. There is a a spiritual blessing to corporate worship that we are intended to experience. It's not good for man to be alone. And that applies not only in the marriage context in Genesis 2, but just generally speaking. That there is a spiritual blessing that God intends for His people to experience corporately, not just individually and here David is saying, oh magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. And really isn't that the case, like when you really, really enjoy something, uh, isn't it often the case you, you want to share it, right? And that it's almost as though like you, you're, you're, you're like kind of completing your happiness like once you're able to share it, you know? Like you found this really great song and you, you don't just keep it to yourself. Well, some people do. I've noticed this. Like you just keep songs to yourself because you're like you want to be the hip the hipster who knows all the, the new music and you don't want anybody. And as soon as other people know about it, you don't want to listen to it anymore because now it's popular. Yeah, I know those kinds of people. I used to be the, that kind of person. Um, but I think truly the, the right attitude is when you truly – Enjoy something and experience something that you enjoy, you want to gather other people around you and, and have them enjoy it as well. And with, when it comes to God, the, the supreme enjoyment, David wants to gather the congregation together. So it breaks, you see verses 1 through 3, that's David praising the Lord for his deliverance and then recruiting other saints. And then verses 4 through 10, he, rec- he recounts uh, how God answered his prayers. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And that should be an encouragement to every other saint who reads this after David has written it. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. I mean, that's, that's a verse that we should open up to when we are feeling uh, as though we are alone and the Lord has, has departed from us. This promise from David, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's, he's been answered by the Lord. and The Lord answered him. The Lord delivered him. And so we're meant to find encouragement from, from his experience because then he goes on to verse 8 and, and tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. So this is not just for him. This is also for all of God's people. So in verses 4 through 10, he's recounting his deliverance. He's exhorting. He's encouraging the people listening or reading to taste and see to give themselves up in trust to God and experience what he's experienced. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, verse 10, though. Someone A few acts during the Q&A and then came up and talked to me afterwards. He says in verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the question we had, is this referring to temporal issues so that the person who seeks the Lord in this life lacks no good thing? Or is this only referring to the future when it's true that we will lack nothing at all. We will be uh, inundated with, with pleasures forevermore. Well, I think it's, an, it's important to recognize that in the context, David is, in fact, talking about a physical temporal deliverance, isn't he? I mean, that's, he's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good now in this life. And he's basing it on his own experience of being delivered from the hands of an enemy. right? So I do think it's right to see and apply these things to our temporal uh, circumstances. And to take this promise home, seek those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. But does this mean that you will have every possible thing that you want in life? I, I don't think that's the case at all. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what he's getting after there, and he, especially by the, even the use of the words, it's that the person God, who God is their shepherd, they will not lack of anything that they, what, need. Right? So it's not a promise to give you every possible good thing that you could ever have, but that you'll have everything that you need, and that you can say that, and you can say that now in this life, and you can say that into the future, but you do want to see some of these things as being fulfilled eschatologically, and we'll, we'll talk about that here when we get to verses 15. Um, and then he goes on in verses 11 through 14 to offer some very practical wisdom to his listeners. And again, he ties us into the, our temporal earthly life. So again, we want to have a, a, a biblical balance here. Are we to taste and see that the Lord is good in this life? Yes. Are we to, to seek the Lord for physical and temporal deliverances of our problems and our troubles in this life? Absolutely. It would be, be, be wrong to, to suggest otherwise and to suggest that we are to only expect spiritual deliverance in the future when we go to heaven or into the, uh, when we're resurrected from the dead. So given the context of this verse, we must say that David has in mind physical, temporal, this life deliverances. Okay, So when he talks about the wisdom here, I think when he says, the man who, who, what man desires is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I think he's talking about earthly life here. Now, you want a long uh, life and many good days? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And this also is very proverbial. You read the Proverbs of Solomon, and he's talking about how to navigate life in wisdom. And if you navigate life according to God's wisdom, there are going to be many temporal blessings. There just will be. Uh, you'll keep yourself out of trouble. You'll see many good days uh, and so on. Are these absolute promises? No. Uh, we know that because, well, uh, Jesus and other uh, old and New Testament characters are examples of those who. Some of them did not live out their days into their fullness. Right? Abraham did. Um, others did not. Jesus only lived till he was thirty-three before he was, or thirty to thirty-three before he was uh, um, killed. Paul was probably in his sixties, but nevertheless after his conversion, lived a very uh, difficult and challenging uh, life. So this is not an absolute promise, but it is something that we do need to reckon with. The Proverbs themselves and this bit of wisdom here in verses 11 through 14 do indicate that there is a kind of temporal, this life um, reward, you could say, for seeking the Lord and living according to wisdom. And Wykey says you're keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it. I mean, just on a very surface level, a person who is speaking deceit and evil and um, and not pursuing peace and uh, not doing good, well, their life is going to be fraught with all kinds of temporal difficulties and potentially get themselves into such trouble that they die at an early age. Okay, so we do need to uh, reckon with the earthly promises, the temporal promises that Scripture does lay out for us. But, okay, and this is where we're going into verse 15 now. However, again, none of these are absolute promises, right? Um. There are going to always be exceptions, and there will be times when, in fact, verse 19, as David accounts here, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Okay, so we have to, we have to deal with that as well. So, verse 15, now let's start in the section that we weren't able to cover last week. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. So what he is trying to do here is he's trying to encourage his listeners that the Lord answers his people. Okay? I'm just going to encourage you today, from David, that the Lord answers his people. Who are his, pe- who are his people? They are the righteous. Now, what is this righteous? Who are the righteous in the uh, Old Testament? Well, the righteous are those whose conduct is righteous. Okay, there's a practical righteousness. But where does righteousness begin? Did they just start doing righteousness and now God now um, uh, views them as righteous because they have somehow earned a certain amount of righteousness in God's sight and now God uh, deems them righteous? Is that how it works in the Old Testament? No, it doesn't work that way in the New or the Old Testament. The righteous person is the one who fears the Lord believes the Lord, trusts the Lord. And because of that right relationship with God, now their conduct is righteous. So their conduct reflects that they are actually in right relationship with the Lord. Their conduct doesn't secure right relationship, it reflects their right relationship. So the encouragement here is if you're right in right relationship with the Lord, the, the eyes of the Lord are towards you to hear your cry. And in the New Testament, this gets um deepened because now we can call upon God we know we can call upon God as our heavenly father so just like a kind and gracious and loving father cares for the needs and even the desires of his children so we can call upon the lord he hears our cry it is toward his the eyes of the lord are towards our cry, this means this, this, this uh, language of being toward the righteous, his eyes being towards the righteous, is having eyes of favor towards the righteous. But then he contrasts that in verse 16. But, he doesn't say but, but I, I will. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I mean, it's a clear contrast. Here, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, v- two very clear groups of people in the way God interacts with them. His eyes of favor are towards his righteous people, but his face is against those who do evil. Now again, why does the evil person do evil? Well, it's because, unlike the righteous, they are not in right relationship with God, and therefore their, their conduct does not reflect a right relationship with the Lord. But But he goes even farther in contrasting the posture that God has against the the wicked as opposed to the righteous. He has a certain posture. Here he's also going to do something. He hears the the cry of the righteous. He hears the cry of his people. But he's going to do something different to the the wicked to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That is a strong statement. But... It is entirely biblical. In fact, the New Testament fills this out. That the anticipation of the old and the new is that there is coming a time when only the righteous will dwell on the earth. Only. That's not the way it presently is, is it? Christians, in terms of um, genuine Christianity, uh, are in the minority the world over. Someone might argue, yeah, but Christians are like a billion strong. Well, that includes just about every possible uh, expression of Christianity that you could come up with. Um, So, we're talking about the, uh, the true church where you have people who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus and believing the gospel. Christians are in the minority so it doesn't appear as though, and, and, and you, you just open up the newspaper, or oh, the newspaper, have you guys ever heard of those? You ever opened up your, your Google News, and you, you see very quickly that the righteous are not the ones who are, who are dwelling on the earth. The, the world is run by the unrighteous. But the anticipation is that the unrighteous, or those who do evil, they, the, they will be cut off, not only cut off, but the very memory of them will be cut off from the earth. And this is um, anticipated in the, the New Testament, or I should say fulfilled in the new Testament, in new Testament. Anticipated in the Old, fulfilled in the New. Listen to how Second Peter 3, 11-13 talks. <clears throat> He's referring to uh, the, the future of this earth and this universe, this temporal, physical universe. He says, Since all these things, this is 2 Peter 3, 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening in the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So there's, we're anticipating a time when God is going to dissolve, as it were, all that we presently see. This present world and universe will be undone and be remade into something else. Verse 13, But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is the hope. The hope is to someday live on a earth where only righteousness dwells. Not even the memory of the wicked will be among us. God's people will be sinless. We will no longer sin against one another. We will no longer sin against God. We'll be in total sinless perfection. And there will be no memory of the wicked on this earth. There will be only the place where righteousness dwells. And David is anticipating that very thing in verse 16 and telling us that's what we are to expect. Um, Let me go through verse 18 and see if you have any questions. Then he goes back and talks about the righteous in verse 17. Reiterating similar things that he said in verse 15. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's a profound promise. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, the question is, what does he mean by all their troubles? How could he say such a thing? He delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. Does he, again, does he have reference to physical, temporal, this life deliverances? Does he include those? Yes, because that's the basis for even writing the psalm. He was delivered from the king of Gath, right? So he does mean that. But to say all their troubles, that cries for a future. And here's the big word, eschatological fulfillment. Eschatological, eschatology, ology, study of, uh, eschatos, last things, study of the last things. So an eschatological fulfillment, that means something that is fulfilled in the future, in the end times when God wraps everything up. An eschatological fulfillment is a fulfillment at the end of time when God completes our salvation. Are we saved right now? Yes. But not completely, you could say. Right? You're saved, and there's going to be some day when you are completely saved. Isn't you, are any of you, would, would any of you like to live for all of eternity in the state that you're in now? Yeah, no. Grimaces on the face. That's good. Those are good grimaces because neither would I. That's, so God must do something more. Right? He must complete our salvation he must raise us up from the dead he must perfect us so that we no longer sin he must uh, give us resurrection bodies he must usher in a new heavens and a new earth so there's a completion and so that's what i mean by eschatological these are fulfillments that happen at the end the lord delivers them out of all their troubles Um, this can only happen ultimately in the future right and let me just take you to uh, a wonderful text in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Since we're talking about new heavens and new earth here. This is the place. This, this is actually going to sum up what David has been talking about in the last few verses, and he's even going to, this text even distinguishes between the, the righteous and the wicked here. But this is the anticipation And this is when that verse will be ultimately and completely fulfilled, when God delivers us out of all of our afflictions. Chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So remember that ties into what 2 Peter was saying. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be, them, be with them as their God. That was a promise made in Leviticus 26.12. It's something that God has been working towards, you could say, uh, for the last several centuries. To dwell with his people, for them to be his people and for him to be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment of David's statement: He will deliver us out of all of our afflictions. Okay. There is a sense in which you can experience some amazing deliverance here in this life and say, "Boy, the Lord delivers delivers me out of all my afflictions," and and mean it sincerely. Um, but there is a sense in which that's not completely true until we are delivered into this new heavens and new earth. Verse 5, this is now where he's going to contrast, bring in this contrast that David was already. And he who's seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So it is going to happen. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Their memory will be wiped out from the face of the earth. The wicked. Those who demonstrate their, uh, that they don't have a right relationship with God by the way they conduct themselves, by the life that they Live And God will, the Lord will, as David says, wipe out their memory from the earth so that only the righteous will dwell here. Uh, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is a pervasive theme throughout the Old Testament. We have to remember that this is not a blanket promise for all brokenhearted people in the world. These re, David is referring to those who are brokenhearted, those who are, crushed in, spirit, those who are in covenant relationship with God. So that if you, are, if you are in the Lord, if you're in Christ and you are crushed and you are brokenhearted, you can know that God dwells near the brokenhearted. And that's a very comforting thing. Now, the question is, is brokenhearted over what? Well, I think you can take these things generally as just the trials of life, brokenhearted over the trials that um we experience in this life but probably more specifically the brokenheartedness and the crushing spirit has to do with brokenheartedness and crushing spirit over what sin yeah sin psalm 147 3 he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds Uh, isaiah 57 15 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. That's referring to someone who's contrite over their sin. You can know it is a safe and good place to be contrite and broken hearted over your sin. The Lord dwells near to you in that moment. Which is why Puritans would say crazy things like this. You're not as happy as you should be because you're not as sad as you should be. And it makes total sense in Scripture. It makes total sense. The, the height of our joy will only rise to the depth of our sorrow over sin. It's just a, it's a paradox of the Christian life, but it is true in experience. I can testify to it, and I think you can testify it uh, from Scripture itself, and there are some of you who can testify to it. It's just when we are brokenhearted over our sin you can experience joy, experience joy in God in ways that you otherwise couldn't. The Lord is near to those who are contrite in spirit. So Isaiah 66, 2, All of these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, um, just an important reminder that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And uh, we do want to be active in cultivating a heart that is brokenhearted over our own sin. And, and, and the gospel isn't, isn't designed so that we will wallow in despair. Actually, what that does is that clears away the vision so that you can see Christ all the, all the better. To see Him as a sufficient Savior who has covered all of your sin, When we're brokenhearted and crushed over our sin by God's grace, He opens our eyes to behold and see more clearly all who Christ is and what He's done on our behalf. So you have, at the same time, both brokenheartedness over sin and joy in Christ. And that is the Christian life, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so just remember the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And when you are brokenhearted over your sin, you can know He is right there with you. And He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Okay, I'm going to stop right there to see if you have any questions up to verse uh, 18. Yes, Crystal. Um, do you think that brokenheartedness over sin is like a characterization of like a true believer, which I know you can't really tell, but do you think it's possible for someone to have a relationship and a connection with Christ yet not have that feeling of, like, oh, I sinned a lot or, you know, being repentant of certain things that they've done in their lives. Yeah, so I want to be careful that we don't set up some sort of subjective standard for people to judge their, um, the assurance of their salvation by. Um, will and, and also because all of us, given our personalities, our backgrounds, our various situations, um, all of us will have different intensities of experience, kinds of experiences with the Lord. And so, uh, to be a Christian, first and foremost means that you have recognized that you are a sinner who, is, who needs a Savior. Okay. Um, the Scripture doesn't give us some sort of uh, uh, standard by which you can say, okay, I've been, I, I'm brokenhearted enough, therefore I can know I'm a Christian. No, you, you, uh, our assurance is based on the work of Christ, uh, what he has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ, um, the promises of the gospel. And then it does, it, our assurance is uh, somewhat based on our, our, our faith and our obedience, but it's first and foremost based on those much larger uh, uh, things like God's work for us in Christ. So... Um, we want to be careful that we are not basing our assurance on our subjective experiences, even of brokenheartedness. First and foremost, our eyes are always on what God has done for us in Christ. And that's why I used the word cultivate a few minutes ago. Christians, genuine Christians, we all have our different some of us experience more brokenheartedness over sin than others. Doesn't mean you're any more Christian. Um, But we need to be about cultivating a life of joy, which means cultivating a life of sorrow over sin, because that's how the Christian life, that's how God has designed the Christian life to work. That the heights of our joy are in proportion to the depths of our sorrow over sin. So we need to be cultivating. So to answer your question more directly, Crystal, um, can someone be a Christian without having sorrow over sin? Well, it depends on what you mean by sorrow over sin because there is some sense of recognition of sin in order to come to Christ. Does it mean that they wept for three hours, uh, um, three and a half hours on their bedside, uh, after on their knees while reading Psalm 34? No. That would be a subjective standard that someone may have experienced in their Christian life but is not required for all Christians to experience in order to have assurance that they're saved. So... Um, I think we need to we need to see these things as a, on a kind of a spectrum. Some of us are going to have different experiences and so on. but at, at basic, there's a, for the Christian, there's a recognition of sin, recognition that I have sinned against God, a turning away from that and a believing in Christ. And then a life, I hope, of cultivating a broken hardness and a sorrow over sin. so that a few years from now, or 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're there is a, a a growing depth of of sorrow over sin, and and an in, and here it is the paradox, and an increase of joy in the Lord, right? So it's a it's a matter of growth and and so on. Crystal, does that answer your your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas, in the uh, new heaven and the new earth, will we simply just not remember like friends and family who weren't saved? Yeah. So I was just discussing this with uh, another believer a few days ago, and I. Uh, said how I, it you. There must be memory in heaven. There must be even memory of our own sin. Otherwise, redemption doesn't make much sense. Like all of a sudden we're there, and I don't remember what I was redeemed from, right? And Christ is still has the scars and the wounds, and He's there. He's the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. But I don't remember what what that even means. So my my statement is that, or my point was that, we will be perfect, sinless in our minds, in our hearts. Can you imagine? Uh, no sinful emotion, no sinful thought, no lust, no anger, no bitterness, no heart of murder, whatever, and be able to sinlessly recount our past sin in a way that is, brings, only brings glory to God and joy to ourselves. How that happens, I don't know how that works because I'm a sinner, right? And I'm still fallen in this fallen condition. And I, so I don't know what it's like to be sinless and to have some sort of memory of my past life and to recognize what Jesus has done. I, um, there is, but I, I can that I can experience that at some level. There is a way in which I can look past, back on past sin, and it doesn't cause me to stumble. It doesn't cause me to, def, it doesn't defile my conscience. Um, and, be thankful to the Lord that he has saved me from that. So there is a sense in which I can experience in this life. I just trust that in the future it's going to be uh, a thousandfold. Um, so because there has to be memory for that, which involves other people, uh, yes, I do believe that there we will have memories of, of people that we've known, even unbelievers. And when we stand in perfection before God we will have a perfect sense of His justice, love all of those things all at once so that we will never once question His justice in judging unbelievers who we knew, even unbelievers who we loved. Now, that is very hard for us to process right now because, again, we're in our fallen condition, but I do believe we'll have memory of it. When, when, when David says memory of them from the earth, uh, he's not so much, I think, referring to people's individual memories, but their their influence and their um, will be will be in a place where only righteousness dwells. They won't have any kind of influence or say, or evil will be will be gone. In that sense, I don't think he's re- he's commenting on specific individual memories. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, the, or begin to? Yeah. Influence versus some um, individual thought. Yeah. Yeah, And I just trust that in, when we are perfect and we're thinking perfectly and feeling perfectly, we will see perfectly God's justice. Because you think right now, like, how could it, I, you know, my unbelieving relative who died, I, you know, if, if they didn't repent at the moment before they died, like, I know what Scripture says about their eternity, and that is horrendous. So it's hard to reconcile, like, how can I be happy for all eternity knowing that? And I, what I, my answer is, is when we are sinless and we are thinking perfectly before uh, God, we'll be able to see both perfectly His justice and His grace, and we will not question for one moment His justice in judging someone who rejected Him all their life. So if you have trouble with that now, reconciling all that now, I can understand that because we're fallen, but I do believe in the future, in when we're perfect, we'll be able to process that. Uh, perfectly. Yeah, uh, Abhilash. Uh, I was just referring to the, I, I think in the prayer of Jesus or in the conversation he had with the disciples mm-hmm. that there's a section that says whenever a woman is in labor she has pain because of her hour has come but when she gives birth to the child she has no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into mm-hmm. the world. So maybe is that maybe a context in which the joy will work the I do, oh, I certainly do. I mean, you look at like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, where Paul talks about um, the suffering now is building up for us an eternal weight of glory, uh, which we can't even comprehend. And it basically, the idea is that the, the glory in the future swallows up any kind of suffering we experienced in this life so that you'll get to heaven and uh, like, no matter how much you suffered for the gospel, you'll get to heaven and be like, I never made a sacrifice. That's how glorious and the repayment will be. It will so swallow up any sacrifice we made in this life that uh, you forget the pain of childbirth, so to speak. Um, I don't think it erases the memory completely, but what it does is that even in memory, you never have one ounce of regret or, um, or I should say, yeah, regret could be salutary. salutary uh, salut, what's the word, salutary? Um, there's not one ounce of um, sinful um, recollection of those things. There's such, a, there's such a swallowing up of the past suffering in the future glory that, like Jesus says, you've, in, in that sense, forgotten the, the suffering. So um, I do think, so I said the word regret, I do think you can have uh, regret in heaven. I do think you can have sanctified, holy regret in heaven. That doesn't diminish your joy, but nevertheless, you look back and be like, you know, there's things I could have done. But um, even that regret won't be sinful, but I think it, it could possibly be there. I don't I don't see reasons why it wouldn't be. But to so to answer your question, I think that's a good verse. Yeah, that's a good verse to um use as a as an illustration. All right, let's. Let's do these these last few and be done with uh, Psalm 34. Um, okay, verse 19. I want you to notice something here. This is interesting. <clears throat> you tell me the difference between 15 and 19, or 15 and 19 and 20, or 15, 17, 19 and 20. Okay, uh, the eyes of the righteous are toward the the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hears, his ears are toward their cry. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Okay, now verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What's the main difference between those verses? Plural and singular. singular. What's going on? What's up with that? Why plural and now singular? Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, Where else in the Old Testament do you find the phrase, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken? Where else do you find that in the Old Testament? Isaiah? Where? Well, 53 is, yeah, that's the, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53. But I don't think it says anything specific about... N- n- bone's not being broken. Maybe it does, and I'm just not remembering right. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. The Passover lamb. This is what the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is brought, bought for money shall eat of it. After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of its flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. It's the only other place you find that phrase. Verse 20, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Hmm. So the astute Jewish reader would have been, huh, that's interesting. We have a a shift from plural to singular, and we have this allusion, you could say, to this Passover lamb, where the bones are not broken. Hmm, interesting. Well, you don't have to be left in the realm of mere interest for long because then you come to uh, John chapter 19, right? And uh, uh, Jesus' body is on the cross, he's already dead. The other two, uh, we're not, and so since the, it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. Why, what's going on here? Well, if you're on the cross, you can keep yourself, this is gruesome, you can keep yourself alive if you can push yourself up to get breath and expand your lungs, okay? So they got, their feet are probably on a little platform. They can push themselves up and pull themselves up and get breaths, and so it prolongs their death, or prolongs their life. Um, and so... In order to get them to die quicker, you go break their legs so they can't push themselves up anymore. And they die in a matter of moments because they basically um, uh, asphyxiate. They can't, they can't breathe. So, okay, are you, you following me here? So, um, the, uh, that, so the, the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of all, of all the, the three people on the cross, the crosses, Jesus included. Uh, Verse 32, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the uh, other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. He was already dead. That was in fulfillment of uh, Exodus 1246. But okay, so verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once out came blood and water. He who saw this is born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, it's right to, to look back to Exodus 12:46 as the fulfillment of this, because um, Jesus it's clear not only in the timing of his death in terms of it being on Passover, but what then what the New Testament talks about is him being the Passover lamb. But, but is it not the case that you can, you can say the Scripture might be fulfilled both Exodus 12 and Psalm 34, right? So that the righteous person that David is talking about in verses 19 and 20 is Jesus. That's, there's only, at the end of the day, there's only one true righteous person, isn't there? You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. You might be, yeah, I am. i I'm imputed righteousness. Exactly, imputed righteousness. I'm not righteous, and neither are you. <laughs> there's only one righteous person, and it's Jesus Christ, and it's through faith in Him that we are declared righteous and then begin to live a life of, life of some kind of practical righteousness. But here you have a very deliberate turning from they to to plural to singular, and then a fulfillment of this in the New Testament. This is Jesus. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus is paradigmatic of this statement. He is the one that Jesus delivers. He's the righteous one that delivers him out of all of his afflictions. Now, however, in Christ, now that we're united to the one true righteous person, we can claim these as our own promises. Many are the, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Uh, Paul says something like this in Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay. So, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's true. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Is that true? Yes, that is also true. And we know that ultimately, that he will deliver, deliver his people out of all of their uh, troubles and afflictions. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Is that true? I would say ultimately, yes, because we will receive resurrection bodies just like Jesus. So that you can say, even if you broke broken a, a bone in this life, seriously, that there is coming a day when you can say, not one of us is broken. Look at my sweet resurrection body. I my bones are intact, right? Through death, God will deliver you from death and grant you so that grant you that uh, none of your bones are ultimately broken. If they are broken, it's only for a moment. It's only for a short, short season. On the other side, the affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So those who persecute Uh, God's people, the righteous, will be condemned. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. I won't go there for the sake of time. But we talked about this on Thursday nights. Um, Very clear, God is going to um, judge those who have persecuted the righteous. But those, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And of course, we know this is fulfilled beautifully in the New Covenant. Listen to Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> See, Paul, uh, David didn't have all the details, did he? He knew that God would redeem the life of his servants. He knew that those who take refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. We who have, have become the recipients of the New Covenant, we know exactly how this plays out. There's therefore now no, here it is, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To take refuge in God, to take refuge in the one to God, is to take refuge in Jesus, right? And if you do, you will not be condemned like those who hate the righteous. Eventually, affliction will slay, will end the wicked. There's an affliction that the wicked cannot overcome, and which, which is what? Death. For, for the believer, for the righteous person, the the last affliction, which is death, actually is the gateway into eternal life. Whereas for the the unrighteous, the last affliction, death is actually the gateway into eternal affliction, actually, is the way you could think of it. And so affliction will slay the wicked for all eternity, right? So that's Psalm uh, 34. For those who take refuge in him and know that they are not condemned, you certainly can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. You've experienced it. And now, the aim of the Christian life is to experience it as often as possible, to give ourselves to the Lord so that we might taste and see that He is good, to cultivate a heart of uh, a broken hearted uh, heart towards our sin, and um, to trust in this eschatological fulfillment where the Lord will deliver us ultimately from all of our afflictions. So I hope this has been helpful. I, what I did was is I tried to read Psalm 34. and This is what, how we'll read the Psalms. Read Psalm 34 in its original context and its original background while also tying together all that we know from the New Testament and its, the, its fulfillment. So I hope that was helpful. we got a couple minutes for questions. So any questions before we go? I see, I see. Um, I can't remember what psalm we're doing next. I believe it's Psalm 45. But if, I, if I, what I should probably do is um, give you guys heads up. It might be Psalm 42. I take that back. It's probably Psalm 42. But I should try to give you a heads up when we, for the next psalm that we're going to so you can kind of read it and meditate on it. That might be helpful. So, yeah, my wife is saying yes. <laughs> so I will. Uh, so I'll try to do that. I believe it's Psalm 42. So, and that'll be an interesting one because most psalms have resolutions. Psalm 42 does not. So we have to talk about what that. What's that about? Okay. All right. Well, if there are no questions, again, you can always ask me questions afterwards. Feel free. I'm. I'm. I'm always open to that. Uh, I will pray for you, and you're free to go or fellowship, and I'll see you at the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful study in Psalm 34, how rich it is, uh, and how rich it is to read it as Christians. Wow, what uh, all the truths that are fulfilled, we see with clarity now how they are fulfilled. And we can read the Old Testament with uh, a kind of wisdom that not even Old Testament readers who are are the original recipients of these uh, words could read them with. We have the wisdom of Christ and uh, the mind of Christ, so we thank you for Christ and the New Testament that fills all these things out. Help us to always interpret the word uh, rightly so that we might be built up spiritually. And I pray for all of these people in here that you've brought today that you would bless them as they listen to your word, that you'd build them up and give them joy in their walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, uh, have a good rest of your Sunday. Feel free to hang out in here for as long as you'd like.